we are joined by friend and director extraordinaire, the woman who has directed the finale episodes of Series 8, Series 9, and Series 10, along with the upcoming Christmas special, Twice Upon a Time. It's Rachel Talalay on the September 5th edition of This Week in Time Travel. Chip, it's lovely to see you on this long weekend. Hello, Alyssa, and I can't see you at all because this is a podcast. Well, it's a figure of speech. Uh, We were away for a couple of weeks. Uh, There was a lot of travel and some family health issues to deal with, but boy, what a good thing to come back to. Rachel Talalay is joining us on This Week in Time Travel. I'm really excited about this. Rachel is one of my favorite people uh, and is always just a great person to talk with. She has lots of wonderful insights on Doctor Who and fun stories as well. So this should be uh, a real treat for everybody. Uh, Spoiler alert, we've already conducted the interview. It will be a real treat. (laughs) Uh, Since our last episode, Russell T. Davis was given a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Edinburgh Film Festival, and Jodie Whittaker made the proper cover of DWM. But the big news item of the last week that I noticed that I wanted to mention before we get to our interview is that we've just had Doctor Who Comic Day and the launch of the Doctor Who Comics crossover event, The Lost Dimension. Yes, many of these issues were illustrated by our friend Rachel Stott. The first issue of the crossover, the standalone special, The Lost Dimension Alpha, just came out. I have unfortunately not made it by my local comic book shop Everybody stopped glaring at me. I will make it eventually. But Chip, you've read this first issue, haven't you? Yes, because I do exist in the 21st century and I do read my comics on Comixology on my iPad. Shush, I want Rachel's cover. Well, it's a great cover and I have it already. I just can't get her to sign it because it would look pretty bad to have Sharpie scrawled all over my iPad glass. Anyway, um, it is it is lovely. It's a great story. Uh, I am especially partial, however, to Rachel's art. She is the second coming of Mike Wieringo, I think. She is just <laughs> such a great artist. Not exactly a spoiler to say that this multi-doctor crossover event includes images of lots and lots of doctors. If you wanted to see... Rachel take on the third Doctor and the fifth Doctor uh, and other characters that would probably be more of a spoiler to mention. Um, it's just delightful. It's It really is. Uh, Rachel is hands down my favorite Doctor Who artist these days. Well, I look forward to getting my hands on a copy of it as soon as I can make it out to the store. It'll be a little complex for those of us who are uh, digitally getting our comics. Uh, the Lost Dimension is happening in its own comics issues. Uh, this first one was The Lost Dimension Alpha, but it's also going to be crossing over through several of the existing Doctor Who comics as well. So uh, collect them all, everybody. If you're already buying every Doctor Who comic from Titan Comics, you're fine. So that was just a quick look at the news of the week. I think we need to check out what else is happening on the Incomparable Network and then get to our interview, shall we? Let's do it. 
this week on The Incomparable Network. Erica pronounces the power of the Daleks the best Dalek story ever on Lazy Doctor Who. Tim Goodman pretty much sets the Twin Peaks revival on fire on TV Talk Machine. My wife Shannon, the nerdists Kyle Anderson, and incomparable regular Tony Sindelar recap season three of Voltron Legendary Defender on the TV podcast. And it's Victorian parlor games on Game Show. Seriously. All this and more at theincomparable.com. As we said, we are so happy to have Rachel Talalay on the podcast with us. You and she are actually friends IRL, aren't you, Alyssa? We are friends IRL. She gave me a fidget spinner. It was very fun. I'm tormenting my cat with it. I was going to say on Twitter, it looked like she didn't give you the fidget spinner. It looked like she gave it to the cat. Well, that's what the cat thinks. Ah, anyway, we did have the chance to talk to Rachel while she's in the middle of post-production on a certain Doctor Who Christmas special, and we talked to her about her experience on the Doctor Who team, and we checked in on her relationship with female fans and on the state of female directors in an industry that is hopefully, hopefully seeing some progress. Today is a really quite special day because we are going to be talking with our friend Rachel Talalay, who directed the series 8, 9, and 10 finale episodes. And she is also directing the upcoming Christmas special, Twice Upon a Time. Rachel, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. Hey, everyone. I can't but imagine, Rachel, that... Stephen Moffat must think of you as a bit of an insurance policy into making sure that he's got some really, really strong uh, series finales coming in to wrap up all three of these seasons with Peter Capaldi. I don't know what Stephen Moffat thinks. <laughs> it always amazes me that um, that I get invited back and uh, even more so that uh, there is seems to be quite a lot of love for my work, which is wonderful because I just want to do great stuff for Doctor Who. And I have been incredibly fortunate to be asked to do all these finales and Stephen's main episodes. So I just feel really lucky. And and the job is always to try and top yourself. And that is an incredible challenge, especially, I think, after Heaven Sent. Absolutely. And we absolutely loved what you did with the series 10 finale episodes, World Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls. I think the thing that struck us the most is these are really ambitious episodes that hop across multiple genres. You've got, you know, solidly science fiction with a ship near a black hole. You've got a very Western feel. And then you have an action adventure sequence with Cybermen and explosions in a forest And of course, you have the genesis of the Cybermen, two doctors, the first on-screen meetup of two iconic masters. Just how bonkers was it to direct these last two episodes? It was really, really nuts. But that's some of the joy of it. I mean, I really love the challenges. So, uh, I mean, I just say, bring it on. And Stephen tends to be late with his scripts, which I think he's finally admitted. Um, (laughs) And so prep time is always uh, very tight. And changes happen at the very last minute. In terms of The Doctor Falls, it was particularly difficult for two reasons. One was that we were ending so many character storylines, and each of those characters were so important. And so trying to find a balance, um, I mean, what a phenomenal cast. 
but trying to find a balance for each of them so they each felt that they were getting their screen time and their proper ending. Um, so that was a directorial challenge. And finding this farm location on a more prosaic uh, level was incredibly difficult. Um, Stephen really wanted a Western feel to the barn, and which meant wood. And that, that just doesn't exist in Wales. Everything is stone. Everything is um, old. And so these sort of clabbered uh, or shaker or Amish uh, type houses don't exist. So we tried to cobble together um, a bunch of different locations. And at the very last minute, and I give huge credit to Pete Bennett for this, uh, the day-to-day producer who's done all my episodes. And I can't say enough that um, our partnership has been has made my episodes a thousand uh, times better. He also does a lot of the second unit directing. It was that he looked at what we were trying to do right at the last minute and said, this just isn't working. And let's put the money in and build a facade for the house and build the interior sets. So we made a last minute change three days before we started shooting to revamp the entire approach to the final episode. And that was hugely complicated. And kudos to the art department for making it work. Michael Pickwode, literally, we were on the tech recce and uh, stopped for lunch. And we made this decision and he designed new sets in the pub at lunch. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's a a really intense schedule. Something that I've noticed about even you've worked with Stephen Moffat on each of your episodes and even dealing with the one writer the episodes have had such different tones in different settings, very different. I mean, the the gap between um, Heaven Sent and Hell Bent alone is enormous. I think a lot of people think of Doctor Who as sort of a writer-centered show because every episode with every different writer can even come across as having a different genre. And I was wondering... If, if there's a special challenge to directing a, a, a show like this, Rachel, compared to some of the other shows that you have worked on that may have had a little more consistency or consistent formula from episode to episode. I think when I started Doctor Who, the thing that surprised me the most was the fact that there's not a consistent director of photography on every episode. I expected to come in like on American shows and on the British series that I've done and have the same director of photography. But they embrace the fact that every director is different and every episode has a different genre and a different feel and a different universe and a different world. And so forcing the same look and director of photography on each episode is a mistake. So suddenly that sort of opened up the fact that, yes, we want you to have a different feel. We want you to have a different world. We'd want you to have... And when I went into Heaven Sent, one of the things, and I've said this before, one of the things that Stephen said was make it be- make it scary, make it beautiful. Scary was fairly easy for me, um, having lots of horror background. But the make it beautiful in this castle with no lighting was a challenge, not because the castle isn't beautiful, but I wanted the scary plus beautiful was a difficult combination. And so... That was the moment where I really opened up my mind to the episode chooses the look and I can actually create a different look. So, so Heaven Sent has a Citizen Kane look, whereas Hellbent 
and the Dr. Falls have more Sergio Leone, and I could experiment with different lighting styles, and Christmas, which I can't talk about very much, but Christmas uh, Beautiful was incredibly important to me. So just beautiful and magical, while it's not a traditional Christmas episode and doesn't lend itself at all to beautiful and magical and Christmassy. So um, taking on that challenge was huge. Stephen embraces that. He embraces directors. Um, he embraces that his scripts are very difficult and that he needs somebody who's bringing in a visual style. And yet it's still not entirely a director's medium because I check everything with him. So I present a package of how I want it to look and what I'm thinking about. And if I think I'm straying off script or if I think I'm straying in a way that he might question, I check it with him. And I think that's a huge safety net in terms of any producer writer is that they, he wants to feel the safety net that I know I can make my own decisions, but I also know where it might he might question them. So you aren't bothering somebody all the time, but you're bothering them when it when they might get in the editing room and go, what the hell did you do? Mm-hmm. You've had a few episodes now that draw upon classic Who. There was the homage to the second Doctor story, The Invasion, with the Cybermen outside St. Paul's Cathedral. And now you've got the Mondasian Cybermen and what looks like a direct continuation from the Tenth Planet. What are the challenges with recreating and really reinventing these classic moments? I think the first challenge is that the fandom has such a love of the classic moments that you're, I, I feel frightened that I'm stepping on someone's toes or I'm, um, because you want to invent a, a new version while paying incredibly uh, serious homage to the previous version. And so not making a scary misstep. So the Mondasians were particularly hard because some people still say, why did you change them at all? Um, Although the Cybermen have had, that makes more sense because the Cybermen have had so many different incarnations. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also, I mean, there was an element to them that didn't work. And, uh, but that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, People are angry that I put footsteps, that I gave them um, heavier footsteps. I've seen that complaint. Uh, so I think all the time you're walking and, and again, I think people think that we have months and months to design these things. And I mean, the patients, for instance, the first tech, which was only two days before we started shooting them, they looked awful. And the chess pieces underneath the robes, the robes look like dresses and the chess pieces look like breasts. Um, <laughs> so, so, so you're like, oh, shit. you know, I didn't, I thought that this was going to work, but it isn't. Um, so that and 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 there's so much is done on the fly. So much is done on set the day when you look at it and go, oh my god, this just doesn't work. Um, that that was off topic, back on topic. So I think the one of the fears. I mean, one of the joys is that you get to watch the other episodes over and over and again, and and you have to make your own judgments about what's important about them. And Stephen and Peter, and I have to involve Peter a lot here because Stephen and Peter both. Um, feel strongly about how they remember these things. And so they were both uh, involved and had um, had thoughts. Peter called me after the first Mondasian and said, 
why is it that you have gloves on their hands when one of the great things about them was that they had bare hands? And I explained that the Pearl Mondasian, we would have a, an issue with skin color and therefore that given the black and white version that you didn't, couldn't really tell whether they had skin tone gloves, it seemed like we could get a scarier feel and something more artificial by putting the gloves on them. But it was partially an issue because of skin tone. Mm-hmm. That was a rambling answer. <laughs> no, that was good. That was good. I feel um, like I'm an expert in the 10th planet. <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've watched 10th planet more than anybody. How many times have you had to watch it now just to get the feel for the, the Mondasian Cybermen and the first doctor? Um, I think uh, sections of it I've watched over and over again for reasons that will become clearer over Christmas. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've watched and, and also um, different reconstructions and the animated reconstruction. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've watched sections of it a lot. What is it like for you to do that kind of that that kind of level of research? Because unlike Stephen and Peter, I don't think I've ever heard or read you in an interview say that Doctor Who was like an integral part of your childhood compared to compared to no, not, them. Yeah, not like them. I mean, when I was. I didn't live in the UK, so I was really, I say, I, I mean, I was aware of it, and we lived in the UK, we were there in the UK a couple of times, but when I was 14, 15, and 16, um, we lived in the UK, and uh, I had a Tom Baker period, but no, it wasn't the kind of, I didn't, I, I wasn't weaned on it, so a lot of the the passion for it has been to go back and learn the things that they actually grew up with, because I had Star Trek growing up in America. You've never directed every single finale episode for each of Peter Capaldi's seasons, really powerful episodes that have defined his doctor. How has the collaborative relationship between the two of you grown or changed over the past three seasons? It just keeps getting better. And uh, when I started, I was, of course, nervous about him. I mean, he's the doctor and you don't know with any actor, you don't know when you're going to make the first missteps and how are you going to put them in a position where they trust you? And so what can you do to create that? My approach to directing is quite soft. And Peter's interesting because I think it's difficult for most actors to have different directors come in all the time. Um, I remember discussing this with Meg Tilly and her saying, because on her first television series, and her saying, I don't know why I have to. I mean, I'm just getting to trust somebody and, and comfortable with their style and somebody new comes in. So in American shows, a lot of actors, you close down and just live in your own acting world. And the director is just the, it's the person who creates the world around you. But in terms of acting, the director has very little to do with you. Um, and that's protection when when you're changing directors every eight days. So with Peter, there was a level of having to find a way for him to trust me. And what I did was keep, kept opening up dialogues because, as I said, I have a fairly soft approach and I like to ask a lot of questions. So the actors feel very involved in my direction. So instead of saying do something, I'll discuss it with them. And sometimes it's because we don't understand it's not 100% clear what Stephen means. And sometimes they'll interpret something differently. And I remember that there was a moment in the first finale where Peter and I just ended up in a really intense dialogue and agreeing on many elements. But I could tell that he was appreciating the depth to which I had 
dissected the script. And it wasn't just how do we get these effects done, but it was to do with the whole meaning of the script. And those are the di- that, that depth of dialogue has just continued. But what's happened <laughs> by the finale on the series 10 was that it was getting so difficult from a production standpoint that Peter actually started supporting me. He actually started coming and saying, are you okay, Rachel? Uh, <laughs> when, when the days were so intensely crazy. And I'd be like, no, I'm, you know, I'm worried about you. This is, you know, we're getting near the end of your run. And, and what am I doing to make, your, to make these things easier for you? But we, we ended up now having such a, we can just talk to each other. So it stops being this sort of formal relationship and becomes more, are you okay? Do you want to talk about this? How can I set this up to make this easier for you? Mm-hmm. So for instance, I asked him before he did the huge speech in uh, Dr. Fall, do you want to do that first thing in the day? Do you want to do that later in the day? So that I can, because he's, he's not consistent. Some actors are absolutely consistent. Mm-hmm. If, Jenna ha- if Jenna had to cry, you wanted it to be the first thing she did because she found it so easy to find that, but then she would become very tired if she was finding it on every take. So mm-hmm. you would you do her close-up quickly. But with Peter, I was able to say, how do you feel about this? Same with the regeneration. At what point in the day do you want to do it? And we spent time alone on the TARDIS discussing the regeneration, and that's a privilege to be able to just be alone with him and design these moments because of the importance of them. Yeah, and you're directing that iconic moment coming up, the regeneration from Peter Capaldi to the first woman doctor, Jodie Whittaker. What was your reaction when you found out that she'd been cast? Um, Well, I had some hints. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I had a weird, I mean, it's amazing. It's, I should start with this phenomenal. But I was, I was told early on that it was going to be a woman, secrecy. Mm-hmm. So I had that piece of information to start with. Um, and then who it was was then kept secret until I kind of figured it out a couple of days before. But I didn't lie when I said that nobody had told me. I did not know for sure until they announced it. So I had to digest both. And, and my first response was, this is fantastic, of course, and this is brave. And I'm sorry that I had to think that it was brave because general re- response, it wasn't brave. It was absolutely natural and the right thing to do. So, and then I was just excited. And then I was scared about having to actually direct it. Why, why scared about directing it? Oh, I think any, any regeneration, it would be scary. I mean, any moment of the, the, how important this moment is. And then you've got more Im- import because of the woman factor. Right. So just not being, how do we give it the power that it needs? What it, and because it was announced only two days before we actually filmed it, I had very, almost no time to think through and work with Jody. So that was scary, too. So I am dying to ask you what she's like as the doctor, but I don't think you'd allow me to live after uh, putting putting that question forward. So um, broadly, she's fantastic. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. For you heard she it here for, first. Um, it's so exciting, and it's cheating on Peter to talk about it, but it is so exciting. 
<laughs> well, we can love them both equally. We can yes, love them exactly. all. That's all I can say because I mean, obviously, I absolutely worship Peter, um, and it's been phenomenal to uh, be his finale director. But um, it is incredibly exciting to see this change, and uh, I mean, Peter's very, very excited too. So, I, but I do feel like, is there a sense of cheating? When this episode comes out, it will be September 5th and production is wrapped. You're into post-production now. What's your involvement at this stage? So everything is slow in the Christmas episode post-production. Our post on the finale was so short that it was just the biggest panic. And now we shot Christmas and we have months before Christmas comes out. So we're on a very slow process of editing. And uh, I'm just doing notes at the moment on one of the uh, edits and we'll lock it and I'll still be involved for visual effects, um, the grades, the mix. Uh, So yeah, I'll stay involved, but not full time uh, between now and there'll still be changes at the last minute. There always are. But yes, so I'm heavily involved, but not living in Cardiff anymore. That schedule sounds luxurious compared to the Dr. Falls finishing and sending it to broadcast almost immediately. Yes, we're all slightly still traumatized and laughing about it that on Tuesday, (laughs) when it was broadcast on Saturday, on Tuesday, we were still changing um, effects and then having to remix around the changes. But that's because the the schedule was so tight for that broadcast that Mm. Stephen was literally running downstairs where I was filming Christmas, showing me recuts asking for my input and then shipping them at an hour later. And also because we filmed the end of the Dr. Falls, the, the David Bradley sequence, the first day of Christmas. So that went out, that broadcast less than two weeks after filming that. And there were visual effects involved in that sequence as well. So uh, that was not far. <laughs> and great. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I say these things are crazy, but I uh, relish uh, trying to do the best possible work under those circumstances. I don't say, oh, this is all so screwed up. Oh, you know, this really sucks. I say, okay, if this is what I'm handed, then how do I make it great? Bring it on. Yeah, bring it on. So, and I think that's appreciated uh, that you're not, your job is to make it as good as you can under whatever circumstances. So the audience has no idea that what you've gone through. People still think you film in order. <laughs> It all magically happens. <laughs> Rachel, the first time I met my co-host here on this podcast, she was on the outside of a circle that you were in the middle of at the Gallifrey One convention. Alyssa had uh, pulled together a Whovian feminism meetup uh, to give people the chance to talk with you about your episodes, about Stephen Moffat, about just Doctor Who in general. It seems from my perspective, the outside looking in, it seemed really important for you to involve female fans in the conversation about Doctor Who. And I see you doing that on social media a fair bit. Uh, Why is that so important to you? I think that we felt like outsiders for so long. Um, And when I first did Comic-Con, which was in 1995 with Tank Girl, Comic-Con was not this cosplay inclusive event. To see this huge change since 1995 and this um, what seems to me to be almost gender parity. I think you can uh, correct me, Alyssa, if I'm wrong. But No, it's about gender parity now. Um, and the cosplay being the most important 
I mean, such an inclusive part of it to see these changes and to have grown up as a nerd and and um, to feel like part of what I can do is help embrace and encourage socially, uh, you know, both women, girls, but also um, people who find themselves on the outskirts, people who feel in some way that they've been there, that they're separated and not accepted. I mean, so it's not entirely women that I support, but it's also um, sort of this world where people have found friendship and uh, companionship and, and common interests. And I love that. And so, and I love these changes and I really want to help people to not feel, I have a very introverted daughter. Um, one of my two daughters is very introverted and anything that helps the introverts, for instance, feel more included. Uh, I feel that that's something I can embrace and help with. The other side of it is that it has been very difficult as a woman director. And forever I've had to pretend that it wasn't an issue. And forever I've had to say, you know, th there's never been any issues. And I've just, because I was always told, never bring it up or you'll never work again. And so being able to talk about it now more openly is fantastic. Yeah. What would you say, Alyssa, about the importance of it? I think it's been really incredible to have that sort of involvement from uh, you and from other women who are working uh, related to Doctor Who. You know, you've got Sarah Dollard and Rachel Stott as well. To have that sort of involvement and engagement, particularly with female fans, has been sort of a a really empowering experience. And I don't use that, you know, tritely. I, I really mean it has given women a more powerful voice in the fandom as a whole, that we're not just the crazy fangirls, which there's nothing wrong about that, but it also shows that we are equal in every respect. You know, we can be involved in production discussions. We can be involved in critical discussions. We can be involved in, you know, maybe dreaming one day of being involved with the production of this show, which, you know, I've heard so many men talk about, you know, what it was like for them being fans as kids and then growing up and being able to work on it. Um, and we don't really have that narrative for women getting involved in the production really until we've had this wave of you women talking about being involved with it now. So it seems like because you've been involved and because you've made an effort to bring female fans' voices to the forefront, that we're really being respected for being the whole people that we are, that we have squee and cosplay and fun, but that we also have ambition and drive and serious conversations about this show. Um, and I think that's been really wonderful. This industry has had a summer of highs and lows. You had Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman, which achieved incredible financial and critical success. And you'd think that put to rest any talk that women can't or won't direct superhero films, but apparently they haven't even locked her in for the sequel. And you've also had the EEOC go into negotiations with all the major studios to resolve charges they are systemically failing to hire women directors. Yet many studios continue to hire men to direct even the most absurd projects like the all-women Lord of the Flies. What concerns you right now about the industry for women directors? And is there anything that gives you hope for the future? Well, I think what gives me hope is the fact that there's an open dialogue. But historically, there have been these periods, these fluctuations where there's a dialogue and then very little happens. 
And what tends to happen is that they create these initiatives that are um, shadowing one episode for a woman director, and then something won't work out. And you, you're back to this version of where, I mean, of all the awful things that were said to me, especially by my agent, um, communicating things that have been said to him, uh, that, that uh, you know, we had a woman director and we didn't work out, or our crew isn't good with women, or our cast isn't good with women, or there was a woman we didn't like. Um, and all those horrifying things that were said and that the ACLU told me were actually illegal um, for me to even hear them. And I was like, really? I'm okay. And this is like my life for 20 years, uh, hearing this on and on and on that, okay, well, that's just a show that's never going to hire women. So I think opening that dialogue is huge, but um, I, I don't, things like shadowing uh, programs, uh, are a band-aid that don't seem to have had great effect uh, in the past. And so um, I just have to keep uh, wondering what's going to have the real effect. Uh, Wonder Woman is clearly an important step. I mean, a huge, huge, huge step. But I don't know that I see... I mean, I think that uh, having a friend who's researched this a lot, who said that really the only effective... Uh, programs have been quotas. And I know we all have issues with quotas, and it's a very complicated issue. But until um, the changes aren't going to come about, until there's more uh, on the, at stake for hiring women. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. And we look forward to seeing more great work from you, hopefully very soon. Thank you. Uh, let's hope that Christmas is uh, Christmas lives up to there's always that terrible fear that you can't live up to your past performance. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely amazing. I think, okay. Rachel, in your case, past performance is indicative of future results. <laughs> it's indicative of hard work. That's about it. <laughs> uh, Christmas is an interesting episode. It's very different. I'm terrified and curious as to the responses to it. But we have to get it finished first. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very much looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. You can find Chip on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time Lord, And you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And we're on Facebook, too. Jason Snell runs the Incomparable Network and graciously invited us to be on it, and we're so grateful... If you like what you hear on This Week in Time Travel, you can support us, all of us on the network, but especially us. Support us, please, by becoming a member at theincomparable.com slash members. Also, please drop a review on iTunes. We'd love it. Our theme music is by Christopher Breen. Our podcast logo was designed by David J. Lohr. And we will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.